So this morning, uh, we are in the second week of a four-part series that I've entitled, uh, or that we've entitled Final Scenes, and that is uh, four sort of uh, unique scenes that uh, unfold in the final moments of Jesus's life here on earth. Um, Last week, we looked at the, the first scene, which was uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and what transpired there in that scene. And today, what we're going to look at is uh, Jesus on trial, uh, Jesus before his accusers. Um, what I'm going to do this morning is uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm actually not really focusing in, I think I have a scripture that we're going to land on. Uh, up there, but I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus on trial by bringing in the details of that story from each of the four Gospels. And for the sake of not being cumbersome in doing so, I'm not going to like distinguish which Gospel I'm pulling from as I bounce around. I'm just going to tell you the story because uh, there's not one of the Gospels that has all of the details. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was actually, uh, he was before sort of put on trial five times, uh, five different sort of episodes of, of facing his accusers over the course of what, what apparently was a number of hours beginning in the middle of the night and then through the morning and into the following day. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna tell you the story as a story, bringing in all of the, the pertinent information um, as Jesus faces his accusers. And then what I want to do is after we get through the story, I'm going to kind of jump back into it and draw a few observations. Is that fair? Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to pull out five observations. Um, I did five last week and everyone survived, all five. So I'm going to go for five again this week and see if we make it to the end. And then there's one little critical detail that I'm going to pull back in at the end of the story. But this is where, uh, this is how this uh, story is, is relevant. Um, uh, for, for any of you who have ever uh, uh, faced an accusation in one of these forms, uh, some of you, uh, your biggest battle is uh, internal voices in your own head, in your own heart that bring an accusation against you that you find yourself fighting. Uh, for some of you, uh, circumstances have come at you in the form of an accusation. That's what I mean by that. Something in your, in your life has happened that's bad, and you, you experience that as some kind of statement maybe from God or from the devil about you as a person right? This bad thing happened. I wonder what I've done wrong to cause this bad thing to happen in my life. And for others of you, you've faced accusations from other people that you've had to navigate and try to understand what does it mean to be a follower of Christ when I'm facing an accusation? Uh, whether or not the accusation is founded or not. Um, 
So anyone who's ever faced an accusation in one of those forums, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the way that Jesus responds in facing a whole series of accusations and see if we can draw some truth for that. For the time when we're put on trial, either by someone else, by ourselves, or by our circumstances. Um, anyone here ever been the recipient of a false accusation? Oh, good. Uh, was the person who accused you here this morning? <laughs> Are you sitting next to them? Just wink. Jenny and I used to put each other on trial all the time. We would do it in different ways. When we would go on road trips, uh, my wife would say something like, I will probably need to use a restroom sometime soon. Could you pull over? No. That's not sufficient evidence. When you say... <laughs> Probably sometime soon. I'll tell you what, when you're like, when you're right on the very edge of like physical pain, then come and talk to me and we'll negotiate the time frame within which I will pull over to a restroom. Because I know, I know that it took me 27 minutes to get past a caravan of eight 50 foot RVs. And while you're using the restroom, I'm going to watch them all go by again, <laughs> knowing that I'm going to have to catch up. You need to make a better case. Actually, I, I remember having an epiphany early in my married life that uh, for me, driving was as to Jenny uh, spending. So she would do this in reverse we would be driving and we would pull over and I would say, uh, I think I'm gonna buy something to eat. And she would say, do you, do you need something to eat? <laughs> I don't need something to eat, I want something to eat. Who cares? It's my money, I'll spend my money, I'm gonna buy something to eat. And she watches me make that transaction and she's thinking of all of the little corners that she has cut to save pennies over the last two weeks, right? Watching me pilfer it away for a cheeseburger that I don't actually need. How do we respond when we're put on trial? Here's the story. Jesus, uh, where we left off the story last week, Jesus was captured. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends who sold him out for money. Uh, he was captured and he was taken away. Well, the story begins with him going to a man named uh, Annas. Annas had previously been a high priest. Uh, the term high priest is used uh, in a very specific way, but also in a general way. So it could be used to describe all of the leaders within the, the priestly group. They were referred to in, in the scripture as high priests, but there was also an office. There was one high priest, right? Annas is not the high priest, but he's the father-in-law of the high priest. And so when Jesus is captured, 
he is brought before, uh, with a fairly small cohort, he is brought before Annas. <clears throat> and uh, the first sort of uh, little trial begins. And the way that it begins is Annas asks Jesus to defend his teachings. So he says, I want you to tell me what it is that you have been saying to all of the people through your teachings. I want you to relay to me uh, what you've been teaching, and then I want you to defend it. Jesus responds to this first uh, question. He says, all of the teaching that I've done has been done in a public setting. There has been no secrets. There has been nothing that, that, that has been kept privy to a few. All of my words have been a matter of public record. You can ask anyone the question as to what it is that I've been up to, and anyone can tell you. And they'll all tell you the same thing because I have not been vague, I have not been mysterious, I have not been, you know, secretive about what I've been doing. It's all been not only made public, but my teaching has, has taken place in a public setting. One of the men standing next to him smacks Jesus for this response. How dare you answer the priest that way? Jesus turns to him and says, if, if I've said something wrong, tell me what it is. Otherwise, why are you hitting me? Annas doesn't get very far. It's not going well. So they bring in the high priest, Caiaphas. So they go from where they're at, uh, location undisclosed, and they go to meet with Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest, the big dog. Uh, as far as their culture, he was like the mayor, the judge, and the police chief all sort of wrapped up in one. So they bring him to Caiaphas, and then what they do is they arrange with a number of different people who are on board uh, with eliminating this guy. They arrange to have several people bring uh, essentially fabricated stories. They weren't entirely fabricated. There was some, like a little bit of truth in these stories, but they, they kind of souped them up a little bit to make it sound really damning, right, for Jesus. And as these men are bringing these false accusations, uh, the, the narrative actually tells us that none of it was sticking. None of it was very convincing or compelling. And actually, everyone listening could kind of tell, like, this isn't really going very well. And then it says that two men came forward and said, we, we remember him saying that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days with his bare hands. 
This guy's obviously out of his mind. And then again, the narrator tells us, and even that accusation kind of fell flat. It didn't really have the weight or the effect that they had hoped. And so Caiaphas brings a razor-sharp clarity to the issue that they take with this man. He says, I want you to answer this question. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus replies and he says, uh, your words, you have said it yourself. I am. And you will see me again in a different state than you see me now. You will see me seated at the right hand of power and you will see me again coming on the clouds of heaven. They did not like that answer. And so they proceeded to uh, beat him. They blindfolded him. They mocked him. They spit on him. And in doing these things as a joke about his status as sort of a rabbi and a, a prophet leader, as a joke, as, as a way of mocking him, they, they asked him to identify who was it that just hit you? Can you tell us? We've heard so much about your special powers. So after humiliating him, venting their own rage, they hauled Jesus to Pilate. Pilate is the governor of the region appointed by uh, Caesar. He is the one in charge of that area of the world to make sure that, they're, that things are kept under control. He's not a Jew. He's a Roman. So they bring uh, Jesus to meet with Pilate, and uh, Pilate would normally uh, see people in this situation in an area called the Praetorium, but for the Jewish leaders, they have a very sacred holiday that's like right around the corner, the holiday of Passover, and so to go into the Praetorium would make them ceremonially unclean, and so they can't go in because they're very concerned about church tomorrow, right? We need to get done with this business of killing the Son of God so that we can be at church on time, right? Uh, so they, uh, fearing ceremonial uncleanliness, they don't enter in, but they, they deliver him and they send Jesus into this uh, sort of courtyard, the praetorium, to meet with Pilate. Pilate's initial reaction is complete disinterest in taking on this issue. He says, you guys, you have, uh, this is a, you have an issue with your own like belief system. This is like obviously a religious issue. Just 
you guys take care of this. I don't need to involve myself. And the Jewish leaders responded. They said, uh, we, we don't have the legal authority to put him to death. And that's actually what we're after. We would like this man, for the crimes that he's committed, to be put to death. We need your legal authority to do that. Pilate says, put to death? What did he do? Pilate walks back into the praetorium where Jesus is by himself. Says he summoned him and he said, are, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew. Your own nation and the chief of your priests, he's the one that delivered you to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate responded, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king, and for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jewish leaders and said to them, I can't find any reason to condemn this man. I can't find anything that he's guilty of. And again, the narrator actually tells us, it says that Pilate marveled that he was amazed by Jesus' unwillingness to speak up in his own defense he found it to be interesting and compelling. Why does this man, who obviously has incited a great degree of animosity, not seem to be interested in defending himself to me? So Pilate walks back out to talk to the Jewish leaders. He tells them, I can find no guilt in this man. And in the course of that conversation, he discovers that Jesus is from Galilee. And he says, oh, great. Herod is in charge of that region. Let's let Herod decide. In fact, Pilate had heard a rumor that Herod really wanted to meet Jesus. He had heard that Jesus could perform tricks, that he could do magic. So he said, I'll tell you what, Herod's in Jerusalem right now. He's just a few blocks down. Take him to Herod. Let Herod decide what he wants to happen to him. After all, he's a Galilean. And so Jesus is then taken from Pilate's court to the court of Herod. Herod was quite pleased. 
the opportunity to meet this man that he had heard so much about. Brought him in before him and his cohort. Asked him a bunch of questions. Tried to get him to do some tricks for him. I've heard that you can do miracles. Do something for us. And when Jesus did not respond, Herod got quickly bored with the whole affair. So they joked about him a little bit. They put a beautiful robe on him. He says, you know what? I'm not going to deal with this. Send him back to Pilate. And so, once again, Jesus is moved back to the praetorium to meet with Pilate again. The storyteller tells us that Herod and Pilate became fast friends that day because Herod felt that Pilate had done him a favor by letting him see Jesus face to face, even though he was disappointed by the encounter. Jesus comes back before Pilate again, Pilate says, ooh, I like this theme. He's got like a kingly robe on. Let's put a crown of thorns on him. And so they fashion a crown of thorns, put it on his head. Then he comes before the Jewish leaders and he says, you say that he incites people, but Herod and I both, we cannot find fault in him. We'll punish him and then we'll release him. And the men are insistent. No, we want this man put to death. And as this interaction is taking place, Pilate's wife sends a messenger to tell Pilate, don't cause any harm to him. I had a terrible dream last night about that man. You need to back away from this. Gosh. I didn't want this case. The people are all freaking out. Now my wife is telling me how I should rule on this case. So Pilate goes back in to talk to Jesus. The the, the Jewish leader said he is deserving of death because he said that he is the son of God, not just king of the Jews. He claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate goes back in and says, huh? You claimed what? Who are you? Where are you actually from? And why will you not answer my questions? Don't you realize I'm Pilate? I'm the Roman governor. I have unlimited power over your existence. I have the capacity to say the word and either set you free or end your life. Answer me. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And this was profoundly disturbing for Pilate. The narrator tells us he's looking for any reason he can come up with to let this guy go. Because at this point, not only does he know that this guy is innocent, but he finds this guy to be very sort of mysterious and, and, and uh, alarming. 
I don't know what's going on here, but something's not okay. It says that Pilate looked very hard for a reason to let Jesus go because he knew that the Jewish leaders were motivated by envy. They hated this guy because he was succeeding at what they were failing at. Leading people to God. So the Jewish leaders, they keep changing their tactic. They see that Pilate is wavering. So one of them calls out and he says, you realize that he has called himself a king, which means that he opposes Caesar. And if you release him, then you are no friend of Caesar's. Pilate does not like that claim because Caesar has the power to end Pilate's life. And then in a moment of like uh, inspiration, he remembers, oh, right. Every, t- every year around this time, I let a prisoner go. I'm going to stack the odds against them and I'll make them make the call. Okay, guys, here's the deal. Every time around, uh, every year around this time, I let one of your prisoners go. You have two options. You don't get to decide this year. You only get two options. I'll let Jesus go, or Pilate picks the worst guy he has in custody, Barabbas. Barabbas is a known murderer, a, a rebel. He incites riots. He's a thief and a robber. He's the worst guy that he has in prison. He says, okay, here's your options. You can have Barabbas released or you can have Jesus released. And the Jewish leaders incite the crowd to demand Barabbas' release. So, that took a while. I'm going to move through my points very quickly. And then I'm going to wrap around and button up the story. Number one, in light of judgment, live in the light. In light of judgment, live in the light. In John 18, 20, Jesus' response to the very first round of questioning is simply this. My life has been lived in the light. What more evidence can I offer you? There is no weapon more powerful to the accuser than deeds done in darkness. Satan is the accuser of the people of God, Revelations 12.10. And Satan, if you're the kind of person who wrestles with accusing voices in your own mind and heart, one of the ways that the enemy is able to work on you is by convincing you to keep things in the dark because he thrives in the dark. There's something you need to know, Matthew 10, 26. There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. This is a principle that's stated throughout the new covenant, that there is a coming day when everything that is in the dark will be brought to light. I have lived for 40 years, which means I've lived long enough to make some decisions, to make some choices, to do some things that I would prefer to be kept in the dark. 
But that's not an option because everything will eventually be brought to light. Why not bring it to light now while I have the opportunity to deal with it, right? While I have the opportunity to, to overcome Jesus says, I've lived my life in the light. There's nothing else to add. Romans 14, 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. In light of judgment, live in the light now. Bring those things that are in the darkness into the light. So God can deal with them now. And in doing so, that you would rob the accuser of his ammunition against you. Live in the light. Number two, many words rarely silence accusations. Mark 15, 5, Pilate marveled at the silence of Jesus. He's amazed by it. When facing an accusation, uh, even in intimate relationships, many words often do not help things. It's careful, thoughtful, intentional, spirit-inspired words that are needed. When Job brings his complaint to God over 37 chapters of the book of Job, his friends have accused him of things they have no evidence for, but he stands condemned by his circumstances, right? All of this bad stuff happened, and their conclusion was, you must be a bad person. And so he brings this complaint, and he actually brings it to the Lord. And he says, God, how could you let this happen? Don't you know what kind of person I am? Will you not speak and defend your actions? Well, in Job 37, God shows up and says a few things. At the end of which, Job responds in Job 40, verse 4. Behold, what can I say to you? I now lay my hand over my mouth. There are times. Even in that vulnerable position of feeling attacked, of being accused, there is a time to say nothing. And multiplying words, oftentimes, will not silence an accusation. When I'm accused, I am tempted to do more talking and less listening, which leads to my next observation, number three, when accused, remain open. When accused, remain open. Jesus says, if there's something that I've done wrong, show me, please, what it is. Tell me, specifically, what is the thing? They have no right and privilege to point out any error in his way. 
He's not even on the same level as them. And yet in the face of accusation, Jesus remains open. Paul did the same thing. Paul was facing his accuser. Acts 23, one of the, one, again, one of the high priests, he was asked a question and he calls, uh, uh, or he gets slapped in the face. He gets slapped in the mouth. It says specifically, Paul was slapped in the mouth for calling the high priest a whitewashed wall. <laughs> you whitewashed wall. The man who slaps him says, how dare you talk to the high priest that way? And Paul's response, you're correct. I should not have talked to him that way. And then he quotes a passage from the Old Testament about how you are to talk to those in authority. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not in the wrong. You don't get to fault me for a little verbal misstep when everything about what you're doing is wrong. When accused, remain open. Take the opportunity to learn something, even if you feel like you just want to prove something. Number four, when accused, assert your identity. All of the accusations fall flat until this one. Is it true that you believe that you're the son of God? Why, yes, I do. That one I can, I'm on board with. When Satan brings an accusation, assert your identity. I'm not even convinced that half of his accusations are totally wrong. But guess what? I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Who was perfect, by the way. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. You say I'm a bad dude, worthy of a lot of bad things? Great, guess what? I got the son of the living God living inside of me. Back up, buddy. When accused, assert your identity in Christ. It's the only case that you have. And man, it's a strong one. To those who live condemned by your own internal voices, let me tell you yet again, there is therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ. Invite the worship team to come up. Number five, last one. Your response when accused is a pathway to God's purposes. The way that you handle accusations 
either coming from inside you, coming from others, or coming from your circumstances. The way that you navigate those uh, accusations is a pathway to God's purposes. As a final act, Pilate uh, sort of pinched into a decision, requests a bowl of water, bring the bowl of water, and he puts his hands in the water, and he washes his hands, and he says, I am not guilty of this man's blood. I wash my hands of him. And the people respond in a way that they they could not possibly understand. May his blood be upon us and our children. Yes, that's right. His blood will be upon you and your children for your salvation because he goes willingly. The way that Jesus responds to his accusers was the pathway to God's purposes. I read this last week and I'll, re- I'll read it again. 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And in doing so, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But by his wounds, you were healed. By his wounds, his blood is upon you and your children for salvation. Would you stand with me? I'm going to take a few uh, minutes together to come before God and worship. Uh, This is a time of not just singing, but of praying and hearing from the Lord. We have a couple of ways you can respond. We'll have communion uh, stations around the room. Again, it's a celebration of his body broken, his blood poured out for us. He says, do this when you gather together in remembrance of me and my death. Uh, You can worship through giving. There are giving receptacles along the back there to support the ministry of Church in the Rock. And then I'll have prayer team ministry members over here. If you have any prayer requests of any kind, love someone to come alongside of you and support you in prayer, uh, they're available for you now. Let's come before the Lord and worship. So as Aaron was preaching, um, I recognized that each of those points uh, stood in direct opposition to our culture and the way that my flesh wants to respond when I'm being accused. Um, but then I recognize that uh, when I feel that way, it's because I'm far more concerned about that pain that that accusation could cause me than I am about God's purposes being established in my life. Um, so regardless of whether or not there's any truth to those accusations, uh, we're presented with the opportunity to respond in such a way that glorifies God and produces growth in our own life. And I pray that each one of us would have the courage uh, to respond well in those times.